This is the Local Action for Our Environment podcast series, brought to you by the Local Government Association. Hello and welcome to the Local Action for Our Environment podcast, a new podcast brought to you by the Local Government Association to support councils on reaching their climate change reduction goals. I'm Councillor Liz Green, Vice Chair of the LGA's Improvement and Innovation Board with lead responsibility for climate change. The LGA Climate Change Sector Support Programme, funded by the UK Government, helps councils to reach their local carbon reduction targets by adapting and mitigating the effects of climate change. This training series forms part of this support offer. As you may be aware, many councils across the UK have declared a climate emergency. I will be chairing this podcast series as we explore how councils can effectively engage with their communities on the climate emergency. In this first episode, we'll be discussing the climate crisis, what this means for councils and why it's important to engage with our local communities. I'm delighted to be joined today by Councillor Clyde Lokes, who's the Deputy Leader of the London Borough of Waltham Forest, and Professor Andy Goulston, who's the Professor for Environmental Policy at Leeds University, as well as the Chair of the Leeds Climate Commission and Director of the Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission. Before we kick off, we will start these episodes with a few questions to get you thinking. From our guest speakers today, I have two questions. Firstly, do you know what percent of household waste can be recycled on the doorstep of a Waltham Forest household property? And also, how much money do you think Leeds could save from its energy bill by adopting cost-effective low-carbon measures? Listen out for the answers during the episode and I'll check in with you again at the end. So Clyde, I'd like to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi Liz and uh, thank you for inviting me along to this podcast uh, today. So I'm the deputy leader in the London Borough of Forest, which is in North East London. Um, I've been deputy leader for around about 11 years now, um, but I've largely always held uh, the kind of envir- traditional environment brief uh, in Wolfen Forest probably for around the last 15 plus kind of years. So. You know, and I've been a councillor for 22 years, so representing the, the Leightonstone Ward in the south of Wolfen Forest. So it's just a kind of little bit of background. Thanks, Clyde. Good to have you with us. So basically, what is climate change? Why is it a crisis? And, and most importantly, why do we need to act now? Well, cli- climate change is what we, you know, I would like to think now we're all kind of noticing happening all around us, whether it's in the news from some of the extreme weather patterns that we're starting to see in Canada or some of the flash floods that we had in London just this week and other parts uh, of the UK, you know, in July, you know, huge downpours that caused flooding to kind of businesses and, and properties. Or it's the fact that, you know, in December and January, we don't have the snow that we used to have. Certainly when I was a kid, you could always guarantee there'd be some snow in December and January when I was a, a, a young child at, at school. And you'd have snow days at, at school when schools was closed because it was just snow drifts. You couldn't get into school. We just don't have those in the kind of way that we used to have them anymore. Autumn would always be an October occurrence. Autumn now starts in September and goes on through till December, you know, with the leaf fall, which was a key indicator of what autumn was about. So we're starting to see, you know, different changes in weather patterns. And that is because the planet is heating up. 
and the planet is heating up as a consequence of kind of human behaviours, uh, human interventions, human deliberations, inventions, uh, you know, largely, you know, over the past three to four hundred years in particular. Uh, and they have contributed to the, the planet warming up. And we're now kind of very aware of that, how we've interacted with the planet and the difference that that is now making. And of course, we are now desperate, desperate to try and change our behaviours, change our interactions with the planet and our surroundings, change our behaviours to kind of try and make a difference, try to stop the planet continuing to heat up cool down so we can start to get it back into a place where it's kind of livable because if we don't the planet will continue to warm up uh, the ice caps will continue to melt and we will start to lose places that we live you know at a pace um, and that then displaces populations and it creates all sorts of geo uh, political kind of challenges for us going going forward and many of those are kind of well documented but the key here, though, Liz, is we can all make a difference. We can all make a contribution and we have to stop passing the buck to different organisations, to different businesses, to different tiers of government. We all have to take some responsibility and start making a difference ourselves. Yeah, some frightening things happening um, at the moment. But what does this mean for local government, for those of us who are members um, or for the officers? So in local government, we're in a, a prime place to start to provide some very hands-on leadership of what we can all do, you know, whether as part of an organisation, you know, and, and leading and facilitating change or encouraging our residents, some of the things that they can do to make a difference because we are at the front line, uh, so to speak. So, you know, we are really well placed to start to build that kind of coalition of behaviour change to start to, to make a difference. And we can do that by, by kind of introducing kind of some local policies, you know, and it could be very basic stuff. And, you know, lots of people still don't like the fact that we hone in on things like, you know, the circular economy and kind of waste management, recycling and stuff. But that's a basic interaction that we can have with our residents around, something that they can do that can make a difference. You know, we can then start looking at how we manage our highways, for example, and start to put in sustainable urban drainage systems to kind of better deal with some of the kind of flash flooding uh, incidents that we now have on a more regular occurrence at different times uh, of the year. We can start to prioritise active travel and sustainable travel, which is one of the things that you know, we've done in Walking Forest, you know, encouraging more people to walk and cycle those short journeys which they have traditionally uh, taken by car, making it easier and safer and giving them the priority to do that means they get out of the car. Now, of course, we all know the car is one of the major contributors to um, why our planet is in the state that it is today. So, you know, we can all do things. And that's just in the kind of traditional spaces looking to a very traditional environmental kind of lens. But we also know that the practices of social workers, healthcare workers can change to make a positive difference. You know, our ex collective experiences over the past 15 months, we're kind of working more remotely and using, you know, Teams and Zooms and other kind of platforms to interact. 
has meant that we have cut down on some of the journeys that we've had to make, but we've still been able to connect with people. We've still been able to make decisions. We've still been able to make changes. And um, yeah, so it's about taking some of those kind of benefits, uh, learnt and shared benefits from the past 15 months and taking those forward. So we don't all suddenly flock into big office buildings and all turn on the heating systems again and leave the taps running and et cetera, et cetera. We can start to make some, embed some kind of key changes. We can use that procurement to actually reach beyond uh, our own organizations when we're procuring different services uh, or different offers for our residents, you know, to insist in, as part of those processes that businesses that are bidding for those contracts change the way that they do things as well so we can start to have a wider kind of reach but we were at the front uh, of this um, uh, debate of this kind of call to action Liz you know we can really make a difference you know and you know and parliament will be the legislators of the big stuff but we can already be making uh, decisions making an impact and helping our residents make some of those small changes on a day-to-day -day basis that collectively can start to have a massive impact on the future of our planet and our climate. Yeah, and, and obviously, as we know in local government, we know our communities better than um, anybody else uh, and what might work for them. But you touched on, you mentioned social workers and other areas. Climate change has been for a long time very much seen as the environment department at the council's responsibility. So how how can we get it cross the whole council and to the wider uh, residents and businesses in an area? I mean, that's, that's a great question, Liz. And, you know, I do share this kind of frustration that um, even now in the council, when there's a question to do with the climate, the immediate kind of, uh, the immediate kind of eyes kind of come to me to, to, to provide the answer. But every cabinet member, it's almost like a corporate responsibility now the climate emergency, just as much as kind of looking after, you know, and making sure our, our council taxpayers' money is well spent. It's the same kind of principle needs to be with the climate emergency. And that is social workers have just as much responsibility. You know, thankfully, housing has started to come on board now because I think there's a great recognition now of just, you know, how damaging some of our housing practices, building control practices have been over many, many years and that whole kind of agenda around kind of retrofitting to make them more energy efficient um, and make them more sustainable, you know, uh, recycling kind of products that have been used in kind of other waste streams to help make those, uh, reduce the carbon footprints of those uh, new housing schemes that are, that are coming on stream. But, you know, it has to be a corporate response now. It can no longer be the environment silo solely responsible for the climate emergency and it's only when we kind of reach out and we make schools as interested social workers as interested procurement as in uh, as interested you know, as a police and our other kind of blue light services just as interested in this debate that we can actually really start reaching out to our communities and that everyone can start making a real, real difference because everyone can change some basic behaviors and practices that can start to make a difference but we have to provide that leadership that guidance, you know, um, and that's really, really important. And that's why, you know, local government is really important in this because we are at the front line with that kind of leadership. We are on the ground. We can demonstrate. We can lead. I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's got to be everyone's responsibility. But how do we make that happen, Clyde? How do we 
ensure that people, you know, our social workers have been flat out. Um, some councils, obviously, if their districts wouldn't have um, a social work department or an education or, or some of the other areas you mentioned or housing. Um, how do we make sure that everyone sees this responsibility in a more collective way? Do you have any tips that you can give us on that? So we have to keep talking and we have to keep talking to our staff, to our partners, to our contractors, you know, literally en masse. We have to keep telling them that this is a really, really important issue and here's how they can engage in it. So in Wolfram Forest, uh, in the autumn, we'll be rolling out carbon literacy training to all of our staff and contractors, you know, saying, you know, actually, this is why kind of windows need to be kept closed at certain times of the year. This is why the heating is now going off at certain times of the year. You know, this is why the flush is as it is in the kind of town hall toilets uh, this certain times of the year. You know, this is what you can do when you go home and talk to your children or your family uh, about why you need to recycle more and take up these opportunities. This is why you need to be walking. We need to constantly be having those conversations with people because they are almost like the entry level kind of conversations. You know, when you start to get people really understanding why it's important that their waste management is so much better than it is now was you know getting more people uh, walking and cycling those short uh, journeys to school to their workplace you know those kind of entry then you can start to build on that foundation and start to talk about some of the bigger challenges some of the bigger behavior challenges that we're going to need to kind of introduce over the coming years because unless we get the basics right unless we get people hooked on the basics then the bigger stuff the bigger challenges we ain't going to go nowhere on and it is so, so, so important that we get people on board and with us, whether they're a social worker, whether they're a finance accountant, you know, whether they're one of our kind of beam crews uh, still, you know, they all need to understand and they need to be on this journey with us together so that we can influence as many people as possible. Yeah, and you mentioned waste management there. That's obviously one of the things that, um, people do recognise it's one of our universal services, uh, collection of waste and recycling. So do enough people recycle enough in Waltham Forest? No, they do not, Liz. No, they do not. So in Waltham Forest, um, our recycling rate has been stuck around the early 30% uh, for, for many, many years. Um, it's about 32% currently. However, however, you in Waltham Forest can come out of your front door and without going any further, recycle 85% of your household waste. You know, and we're constantly expanding the things that you can recycle on your doorstep because the easier we make it, uh, hopefully we get more and more people to kind of buy into it. So, you know, in Morphin Forest, your batteries, your domestic batteries will be picked up weekly from the top of your bin. Uh, your textiles will be picked up from the top of your bin on a weekly basis. Your small electrical items will be picked up, you know, wires, you know, redundant wires that you no longer need for your various iPhone and Android, you know, equipments and such like, you know, all of that can be collected from your doorstep in one device. Um, and, you know, it's a real, real challenge, a real challenge to get people to do the right things there. 
even when you make it so, so simple. And it's just about reiterating and communicating with people just how important doing this right is. And of course, the more we recycle, the more money we can actually take out from that service and put into other services, like helping retrofit more of our kind of council house uh, stock, you know, to make them fit for purpose and reduce fuel poverty, but also make them more efficient so they're not having such a negative uh, impact on the climate. You know, gas boilers, so many gas boilers in our properties now that we're going to have to take out if we're really serious about the climate emergency. So, you know, some big, big challenges and we need to be kind of identifying you know, the easy things that people can do, but then also freeze up cash that's good for the climate, good for the, 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 the bank balance, but then creates that kind of pot of cash so we can do some of the other bigger, more challenging uh, issues that we need to address. So thanks, Clyde. And throughout this uh, podcast series, we will hear some of the uh, tips from other uh, guest speakers who will talk about the best ways to engage the community. And there'll be some great things I know coming up about how to do that and get those com the communities to um, make that change that we want them to make. But lastly, Clyde, what would be your sort of top tip for another local authority that's maybe not quite as far down the route? I know Waltham Forest, particularly on the cycling um, and it, uh, walking infrastructure is very well advanced, but what would be your top tip? Well, I, I think it's, you've got to be bold. You, you, we've got to be bold in kind of and, and honest in these conversations with our, with our residents. You know, change has to happen. Um, there is no doubt about this and the kind of perhaps the traditional ways, the, the very timid ways that local government has gone about kind of delivering change in the past with kind of consultation over consultation and kind of lowest common denominator uh, approaches. That's not going to work going forward. We don't have the time. We need pace uh, on, on this agenda. So that's why we've got to be honest with our residents around the realities of what climate change means to them locally, because they can see it internationally. Occasionally they can see it nationally, but they don't always recognise it when it's actually on their doorstep. Um, and so, you know, we've got to connect them through that journey, say, well, actually, this is happening in Canada. Um, this could be happening here too. You know, that's the dramatic differences that we are seeing as a consequences of human interactions with the planet. And there are simple things we can do. So we have to then provide that leadership that secures that behavior change going forward. So it's a little bit about honest conversations, pace uh, and leadership. Thanks, Clyde. And, and uh, in one of the later podcasts, I know there's a frightening statistic of a uh, something that could be more difficult to obtain that I think all of us would want. So you'll have to listen to, to the rest of the series to find out what that is. Um, uh, uh, coming over to, to you, Andy. Um, so can you tell us, you, you, you have a myriad of, of roles, as we heard, a little bit about what you do in those roles? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm chair of the Leeds Climate Commission, which is a, a body, an independent body, which draws together the council itself, but also all of the main organisations and community groups and, uh, and and businesses and so on in the city to take shared responsibility for the climate challenge. We, we felt as a city that it was too much to leave it to, you know, one or two people in the environment department, as you were talking to earlier that it needed to be mainstreamed into all of the other areas of the council's activities into health and transport and housing and education and 
economic development and so on. Uh, but also that it needed to be shared across the city and that, uh, you know, all of us individually, collectively needed to step up. And the commission was an attempt to bring us all together to be positive uh, and to guide and track and support climate action in the city. Uh, and my other role is, is now the director of the Yorkshire and Humber Commission, which is a regional commission for the five and a half million people in Yorkshire and Humber, works across 22 local authorities and is, is doing the same thing, basically, but operating at a larger scale with a hopefully you know, bigger, broader opportunity for the impact. Well, that's great. And obviously, climate change doesn't, um, Waltham Forest or, or Leeds can do wonderful things, um, but it doesn't respect the local government boundaries for some reason uh, and decide that, you know, it's only going to affect the ones that don't do so well. So great that that um, Humber and Yorkshire are coming together for this. But Andy, why should your average UK resident care about climate change? Um, you know, we've all got busy lives, you know, we're in a pandemic coming out of it, hopefully, but we've all got things in our, our lives we need to be getting on with. Why should we care about the climate crisis? I think two reasons, and they're, they're kind of the mirror image of each other. One is because it's a massive threat. You know, the science is really clear now that we are perilously close to the point where we're going to lose control of our own future, that once you cross over this threshold of about one and a half degrees of warming, which doesn't sound much, but, uh, you know, it's behind all sorts of changes globally, you know, that things happen like our forests dry out and then are more susceptible to burning you know, or the ice caps melt and then the world absorbs more heat, you know, or the Gulf Stream weakens. And there are all these absolutely fundamental things which will change our food supply, our water supply, our weather systems. And, you know, some of those things will drive further climate change. So once we cross this threshold, you know, and the most common one is, is the melting of the permafrost and the release of massive amounts of methane, which then drives further warming, which leads to former me uh, further melting and then further climate change and, and, you know, becomes a vicious circle. And, you know, you look at the science and it's genuinely terrifying. I'm not a scientist, but I do work on this and I have worked on it for years and years. And it's just getting more and more worrying. And, you know, maybe all of that seems a bit abstract from normal people's lives. But, you know, when it starts impacting on, you know, food supplies and, and conflict and stability and migration and you know, it will be fundamental in its impact on, on our children's lives um, in, you know, if it's not already, to be honest. But the flip side of that is that it's a huge opportunity. And, you know, one of our key messages is that climate change and tackling climate change is a way of tackling all sorts of other agendas. It can help us to improve public health and reduce fuel poverty. You know, it can help us to improve connectivity and reduce congestion and enhance air quality. It can create good quality green jobs. You know, so it's a positive opportunity, including it very much at the local level for, for cities or, or other authorities to, to, you know, to work towards the kind of future they want for their area and their residents. And I think we need to frame it in positive terms and people need to be kind of excited about the kind of place they can live in that is net zero and is climate resilient and is, you know, biodiversity friendly as well. Um, and people think that's the future I want for me and my kids. That's the kind of place I want to live in. That's the job I want to do. Um, and only, I think, by framing it in those kind of positive ways, are, are, you know, people generally going to get on board. I think if it's all hair shirts and sacrifice and, you know, denial and, and so on, then I think we're going to face a, a much bigger struggle getting people on board and, you know, building that social license for change, if you like. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned the, the potential for positives coming out of it um, because people don't like um, just being threatened, essentially, that it's all going to be bad. So we need to, to see those positives. Our audience here is members and officers of local government. So you've talked a little bit about the working leads of the Climate Commission, bring everybody together. But what specifically can councils uh, do and how does that feed into that wider area that you were talking about? I think councils are obviously central to this and you know it's really hard to imagine it happening at the local level without you know local authority leadership but on the other hand local authorities can't and maybe shouldn't try and do everything you know and, and maybe sometimes there's a culture change needed to switch into a, a more of a partnership or an enabling mode where they try and connect with their communities and with their businesses and say you know this is our collective ambition to you know become a net zero climate resilient you know more broadly sustainable place but we need you on board to do it and you know as i said earlier by getting on board you can um you know develop your business create new jobs live in a more you know friendly uh, inclusive vibrant area and so on and so on um so you know local authorities catalyzing that broader change and that broader buy-in i think is absolutely crucial um Great. So, so it's our leadership of place role um, as councils that, that really can come to the fore in all of this. And how do you feel that that works in terms of engaging with our residents, our businesses, um, our, the other public sectors? How's the best way to be able to engage in your view? Well, in Leeds, a couple of years ago, we ran a citizens jury. Uh, and that was run by the Climate Commission. <clears throat> and initially, honestly, there was a little bit of wariness, I think, in, in some areas of the council who thought that, you know, we're elected councillors, we know the public, uh, we represent the public, you know, and we can speak for them. And why do you need a kind of different form of democracy, a, a more deliberative uh, approach to this? Um, but we struggle to get all of our key constituencies to contribute to the climate debate. You know, maybe for good reasons, you know, people are under pressure and, and um, you know, it's not their top priority. And, and us climate folk need to understand that. Sometimes I think we're a little bit tunnel visioned on it. Um, but the point of the citizens jury was to build a, a mini public to get people from every part of the city, from every part of the community, different age groups, uh, obviously the gender balance and, and the, um, uh, the ethnic balance as well, and the, um, uh, the diversity of attitudes to climate change. And, and we brought them together. They spent 30 hours deliberating uh, and, and, you know, driving the questions from their perspective. Uh, and at the end of it, they came out really strongly and, you know, almost unanimously and said, A, we buy that this is a major issue and B, we want really ambitious action. Uh, and that, that was so crucial. And afterwards, I think the council or the parts of the council, which were initially a little bit wary, um, uh, we're more convinced that, you know, that this is a real issue, even if it's one they don't hear on the doorsteps or that's not in their mailbox on a regular basis, you know, that if people really engaged with it and, and heard about the detail of it and had a chance to really explore why it's such a big issue, they would want more, more climate action. So, you know, councils can convene those kind of conversations. They can show leadership. They can, you know, empower and enable and, you know, create a framework for um, for other actors to, to buy into this agenda. And I, I think that's increasingly crucial, as, as, as I said earlier, 
Um, councils are crucial, but I don't think they can do this on their own. Yes, and, and I'm sure that you'd agree with Clyde's comment earlier that it's about the whole of the council, not purely an environment section uh, of the council to be able to show that leadership. Absolutely. If we just leave it to the environment or sustainability folk, um, A, it's massively unfair on them. It's too big a challenge for any one or two people in many authorities to deal with. Uh, but B, it needs to be right in the middle of housing policy and, and, and transport policy and so on and so on. It needs to be mainstreamed and wired into all aspects of the city council and the city more broadly, you know, of their activities. Otherwise, we won't do it. It's not, it's not enough just to have a few environment people swimming against the tide of all the decisions taken elsewhere in the council or in the city more broadly, which are kind of washing us in the other direction. And, and Clyde also mentioned, you know, it saves money um, for councils quite often. Um, have you got any examples in Leeds um, of where savings could be made? Well, yeah, so we prepared a net zero roadmap for Leeds. Uh, and the key finding was if we did all of the seemingly no brainer things that would pay for themselves and more, over their lifetime, then it would cut the city's energy bill by £650 million a year. And one of our challenges to the city at large is to say, well, what other opportunities are there at the moment to keep or to bring £650 million a year into the city? You know, that would create several thousand jobs. You know, if there was a major corporate that wanted to relocate to Leeds uh, that would bring £650 million a year and create thousands of jobs, the city would absolutely fall over itself. It would pull out all of the stops to compete to get you know, Microsoft to, to move from Seattle to Leeds, uh, unlikely as that seems. Um, and you know, our challenge is that this is the same scale of opportunity. We want the same level of energy and ambition and mobilization to unlock that opportunity because it's absolutely real and it's, it's right in front of us. But there are some real barriers, notably how do you raise the money to invest to unlock those kind of opportunities. But it's a massive opportunity and let's be positive about it rather than you know, feel overwhelmed by it or feel that it's all about, you know, sacrifice, as I said earlier. That is um, a lot of money um, to bring into one of our core cities. Uh, and you're right, all councils would love to have that opportunity. So we need to take it. Um, just want to touch on your other role, uh, which is in the wider region of Yorkshire and Humber, um, and how you feel that the councils there um, can work together more collectively because you know working across councils is not always an easy task because we have competing demands. So have you got any thoughts on, on how that's working and how it can work across councils? Yeah, so we have 22 local authorities, combined authorities uh, across the, the region of Yorkshire and Humber. Uh, some of them are able to do amazing things. Uh, and some of them are smaller and are more challenged and, you know, have struggled to make progress at the rate that we would hope. Um, and, you know, that's understandable. Um, but the idea of the Regional Commission is to bring us all together, to pool our scarce resources and our energy, to support each other, to transfer good practice around uh, and to act collectively. And, um, you know, there is a scale issue here. And we, we're already noticing that when we speak as a region, you know, and that can be to, to Westminster and to government, it can be to, you know, business and to finance investors, for example, or, or it could be just internally, the scale of our activity and the credibility and the, the energy that comes from operating at a regional level is, is really crucial. Um, one of our aims is to 
promote a transition uh, to net zero and for climate resilience that doesn't leave anyone or anywhere behind. Um, and you know that includes the areas and the people and the communities and the businesses and if it's appropriate, the, the authorities that are struggling to act perhaps at the moment. Um, and you know, as I say, hopefully we're a force for good and we're building our capacity to act collectively uh, and, and pull our resources to deliver on this because it's a huge challenge, absolutely. No one's denying that. And I think we, you know, a lot of us climate folk, you know, operating in isolation really need some help and, and some inspiration and other people to energize us at times. And hopefully the, the commission is doing that. Yes, and obviously each of those councils, as you say, has its own challenges, but they have their own demographics. They have, um, you know, they're all very different. And at the LGA, we fir firmly believe that local government is the best place to make decisions because uh, we know our communities best and those councils will will be able to do that. Um, you know, your towns versus and your cities versus your more rural areas. So I think it's great the way that that's coming together and giving you a greater power to your voice. So just to finish off, Andy, what would be your tips for councils, um, officers and members, uh, as I said to Clyde, who maybe aren't quite so far advanced or to just, you know, move a bit further down the line of the work that they want to do? I think the big one is, is to not see it solely as a massive challenge, but also see it as a huge opportunity to deliver on all, your, all of your other objectives in housing, in public health, in equality, in employment, and so on. And you know, repackaging it and reframing it in that positive way, I think brings on lots of other people on board in, into this. And you need their energy and you need their resources and you need their, their leverage, if you like. Um, so that would be the first one. The second one would be to say, you know, don't try and do it all on your own. Um, you know, I know that at times local government wants to be the the centre of things, and it is crucial, but it's not the only actor. And, you know, by operating in more of an enabling role and more of a partnership role, you can bring in, you know, all of the other businesses and the main organisations and the, the social and community groups that you're going to need to do this. Without them, I think it will grind to a halt because, you know, we often say if people feel this is something that's being done to them rather than being done by them or for them, then at some point they'll kick back. Um, and instead of doing that, if you get into this partnership role and do it together, then I think you can take people with you and, and go much further and faster in the process. Thanks, Andy. That gives us some real food for thought there. And that brings this episode to a close. At the beginning of the episode, I asked whether you knew the percentage of household waste that can be recycled on the doorstep of a Waltham Forest household property. Amazingly, this is 85%. And Leeds could save a massive 650 million a year from its energy bill by adopting cost-effective low-carbon measures. If you didn't manage to catch those answers during the episode, perhaps give it another listen. Thank you so much for listening today. This episode was presented by myself, Councillor Liz Green, and produced by the Local Government Association. Many thanks to our guest speakers, Councillor Clyde Lokes and Professor Andy Galston. This podcast forms part of the LGA sector support programme available to councils to support their work in combating climate change. To learn more about the climate crisis and the LGA sector support programme, resources and materials will be linked in our show notes. You can also find out more information on the support pages of the LGA website at local.gov.uk and you can sign up for our free monthly e climate change e-bulletin. 
Thank you again for listening. Please do share this podcast with your friends and colleagues, and we look forward to welcoming you again next time.